Welcome back to the IndieVets Happy Hour. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Heller, DVM. I'm with my co-host, as usual, Dr. Marissa Brunetti. VMD. VMD, I'm pointing to you. <laughs> All right, so thank you for joining us. If you caught our last episode, it was about what's new in 22. It was really interesting. We had a whole bunch. We had a nice panel on here. We did. We did have a nice panel. That was a lot of fun, and we should do that again soon. Today, we're, we're going to get back to some basic medicine, <laughs> if you can call it that. Continuing with endocrinology, because apparently we really like endocrinology. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about canine pancreatitis. We're separating that, obviously, from feline pancreatitis, usually different presentations. So next time, we should talk about feline pancreatitis. So, so stay tuned for that. The goal of the episode is uh, really to talk through what we're going to see as general practitioners, and talk about what you might see in the ER or an urgent care setting. This episode is intended mainly for general practitioner veterinarians, but obviously practice managers joining us, technicians, assistants who are just interested in this stuff. Definitely listen up. A lot of good information here. I also think that when sometimes when we say pancreatitis to pet owners, they're like, what? Like googly eyes, because like, it's a big word and we don't talk about it a lot in human medicine. I mean, it does happen in humans, but it's not a common word, obviously. And so I think for pet owners, like hearing this word and then, you know, understanding that it can look like a lot of like things, you know, that they may think their dog had, like, oh, they ate, just ate something, you know, like foreign. This is actually, it's good to hear that this is something that can happen fairly commonly in a dog. And so I do think pet owners will like this episode. I, I kind of like this topic because in general practice, we don't always think of like pancreatitis when we see GI upset. Like we always usually think dietary indiscretion and we think foreign body obstruction and mm -hmm. toxicities and things like that. And pancreatitis is usually like, we, we don't really think of it as being a mild issue. Usually we right. usually think of pancreatitis as this severe disease, which it can be. And yeah. we'll talk about that today. Yeah. So let's jump in. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I'm, I was going to tell a little story when I was in the clinic two weeks ago, I got this sick appointment on my schedule and it was like, dog's been vomiting, you know, since 4 a.m. and doesn't want to eat. And I went in the, into the record and I was like, oh, it's a 12 year old miniature schnauzer. Oh, it totally has pancreatitis. Right. So talk about, you know, some what are breeds, you know, commonly get pancreatitis. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you you hit the the number one, the numero uno, miniature schnauzers, but Yorkies tend to come up a lot as well, um, and other terriers as well, typically smaller dogs, but it can be any breed, mini poodles as well, mm -hmm. typically older dogs. You're not yep. seeing this generally in, in the puppies. Um, you're seeing this in, you know, middle age to older, often overweight dogs, and, yeah. you know, even in dogs that, you know, have diabetes, Cushing's, or hypothyroidism are at a higher risk. Endocrinology. Yeah, hence, <laughs> yes. hence endocrinology. <laughs> Good. And why why is this disease actually important to like keep on your differential list? I mean, it can be deadly for sure. I mean, it can be deadly if not treated. This can certainly cause, you know, an acute severe reaction in the body. We'll talk a little bit about like DIC and SIRS and these things are really deadly. And if they're not hospitalized in some of these, you know, more moderate to severe conditions, then really the prognosis ends up being poor, which we'll talk about as well. So as general practitioners, we often see this in mild cases. We might not even really realize we're dealing with the mild cases sometimes. We just kind of treat the symptoms and have them go. But if it if it gets severe, it's it's certainly poor prognostic indicator. Really briefly, what does this look like in your patient when they come in? 
you know, like I said, it's going to be very similar to any acute abdomen presentation. So abdominal pain, you may or may not notice that on on exam, but oftentimes it'll come in having been vomiting, not eating. If you do a temp, which you should, they would often have, you know, fever, elevated temperature. And uh, oftentimes they'll have diarrhea or even like bloody diarrhea. Yeah. In some severe cases, they can already have some, um, you know, some jaundice, some icterus Mm -hmm. that you may note on exam as well. And I would say if we don't notice the pain, you know, because animals are really good at getting adrenaline rushes, you know, when they come to us. Um, Pet owners, you know, you may notice something really subtle, like they don't want to go for their long walk or they are just sitting in the same spot in a room or, you know, sometimes they can like be hunched over. And if you like touch their back, you may think they have back pain, but they can have abdominal pain. So something to look for in, you know, just for pet owners. Yeah. And obviously the more severe cases that you see, they could be in shock. Mm -hmm. You know, they could be recumbent. Yep. They can have, you know, free abdominal fluid. The one thing that I did, actually I found in some research, was that they're almost always dehydrated from all the vomiting they've done. But sometimes you can't tell because they could be so nauseous that they're, you know, they could be hypersalivating. And so you may not notice that. And then because a lot of these pets are fat, you might not notice the skin tenting either. You know, they just got Mm. a lot of that, a lot of that subcutaneous fat that you just can't see that. So, you know, the dehydration is usually more severe than they look like. Right. So just just assume they're they're dehydrated, and we'll talk about that when we we get into treatments. That's a really good point. I didn't even think about that. But all right. Well, so let me ask what, you some questions. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm answering everything, and you're usually the one that's here as the expert. Don't worry, I'll I'll give you the easy ones. Thanks. What is Thanks. the cause of pancreatitis? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? No. Um. So usually it's diet. You know, in dogs. So when the digestive enzymes, you know, they get activated prematurely within the pancreas because, you know, for lay people out there, the pancreas is responsible for, you know, lots of digestive enzymes. And usually it's like mostly from ingestion of fat, really high fat diet, you know, going through the trash and like eating, you know, horrible, terrible things, you know, may happen after Thanksgiving or, you know, we talked about, you know, diabetes, if they have hypertriglyceridemia, you can also get pancreatitis from that. Obviously, there's other things that are less likely, but you can see it from trauma. You can see it from certain drugs like azathioprine, tetracycline, potassium bromide. I always forget about that one. And, you know, there are other potential causes. I know generally, you know, I was just reading in today's veterinary practice, you know, steroids are not shown to be a cause of pancreatitis, but you can also see it post-GDV, which is interesting. I've never seen that. Have you? You know, if you are doing an abdominal explore and the pancreas gets you know, twisted manipulated, up. twisted, you know, if, you, if you're a little rough in there or if things are happening in there, I think they can just cause almost like just trauma to the pancreas, yeah. which can cause inflammation, causing pancreatitis. So I think that's true. I think that's where they were going with that. Yeah. And you're right about the trauma. Like if you're just doing regular surgery in the abdomen and you rough up the pancreas for some reason, like I always remember, like I would see it when I was doing surgery. I'd be like, don't, don't touch don't it. Touch it. <laughs> don't touch it. <laughs> and when we get into how to diagnose it, you know, sometimes you have to touch it to, to, to really get a hundred percent diagnosis. But we could talk about how most people diagnose it, which is not surgically. I was going to say, I'm like, I hate the diagnosis of pancreatitis, but, you know, walk us through some things 
that you can see in typical blood work? And then what are some additional diagnostics if you really want to find that this is pancreatitis? Yeah, I think the most important thing to note about, you know, certain diagnostics is that because it can be so variable in its presentation from, you know, very mild to very severe, there's no like pathognomonic, there's no specific way to diagnose it on any test. You know, a lot of these tests can be normal, even if they do have pancreatitis. So like on a CBC, you may have an inflammatory leukogram but you don't always. You may have thrombocytopenia. You may have a low hematocrit or a high hematocrit, just depending on where you are. So that's not really that specific. A lot of people used to look at the lipase and amylase on the chem profile. And if you see severe, like if you see it really high, yeah, and you have the 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 symptoms at the same time, very high likelihood. But again, fifty percent of the time it could be right, fifty percent of the time it can be wrong. You know, there are lots of things that can cause that increase in lipase and amylase. Pretty poor sensitivity on that test and specificity. There are some other tests that we've now come to rely on. So there is this test called the CPLI, you know, a PLI SNAP test, and it just stands for canine pancreatic lipase. Um, it's a great test. It's fairly sensitive 80 to 85% of the time. It's not perfect, but you know, again, we're, we're not just looking at one test to diagnose this. We're using a lot of different things, which we haven't even gone down the list yet. But what's nice about the SNAP test, it takes 30 minutes and most of the time you either get like a abnormal or a normal, meaning there's some right. kind of threshold. And if it's above that, it says it's abnormal and you can pretty much tell that it's pancreatitis from that test. Yes. And that one is not quantitative, right? Like you said, it's either normal or abnormal. If you want the quantitative version, then you need the spec CPL. And that is not in-house. You have to send that to a reference lab. And it is a little bit more expensive than the SNAP, obviously. So would you say the SNAP has become pretty much the standard at this point? I mean, some, here's the tough part. So like some Antec profiles have a spec CPL in all of their like wellness panel. So it'll just show up on a chem. So I do see a lot of specs happening and I working in a lot of our partner hospitals, not all of them even have the SNAP CPL because they're just like sending out the spec. So, or they're just treating, you know, supportively anyway, until that test comes back. So I've seen both, but I would say it's probably the most common additional test, the CPL, whether it's spec or SNAP, spec or SNAP, two cool names for dogs. Spec and SNAP. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I like that. Amylase and lipase, also (laughs) good names for dogs. So with any acute abdomen, we're also going to want to use some diagnostic imaging. And in a general practice situation, we have radiographs at our disposal. So we're going to take some abdominal radiographs. Typically, we're not going to see anything. In the literature, they do talk about some mild changes that you can see in the duodenal region. But I'm not going to pick that up. Yeah, I don't think anybody's going to pick that up. Basically, we're trying to rule out other things with the radiographs. Really, the the imaging that that is more effective is the ultrasound. And up to 70% of the time, radiologists can pick this up or a good ultrasonographer can pick this up. And, you know, what they'll see is a hypoechoic pancreas surrounded by hyperechoic fat in the region of the pancreas. I'm not going to find that, but <laughs> yeah, you're not gonna find that. if anybody is great with ultrasound, that's what you're looking for. You're going to see a thickened pancreas. Oftentimes you can see the biliary duct and really what you're looking for, you want to, again, one of the things to rule out would be like a mucosal. Uh, gallbladder mm-hmm. mucosal. Yeah. So usually you can, usually even to the less trained ultrasonographers, they can they can rule that out as well. 
One thing that I did note was that if you are doing an ultrasound and the animal's hospitalized, you may want to repeat the ultrasound. You know, if you don't find it, you may want to repeat the ultrasound later on in the day because things can can change pretty quickly with this yeah, disease. That's a good point. Of course, if you have that. Although we all know our radiologists are super busy right now. and <laughs> So busy. Yes. Unlikely they'll have that in their, in yeah. their day. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a minute to discuss treatment for pancreatitis. I'm a veterinarian, sure, but I'm way more than that. I'm also a tango dancer, a struggling but determined pie maker, and a mom. With IndieVets, I get to choose when and where I work. I create my own schedule and choose shifts at nearby animal hospitals that are right for me. Having that flexibility is exactly what I need to have plenty of time for all those other things that I am. Because I'm more than just a vet. Visit IndieVets.com to learn more and apply. All right, well, let's talk about, well, I guess this used to be more of a controversial topic, but treatments. (laughs) Treatments for pancreatitis. You know, like I said before, dehydration is going to be one of your biggest issues to to combat. That's really the most dangerous aspect of this is keeping your pet hydrated, the patient hydrated. Mm -hmm. So fluid therapy, IV preferably. If it's mild, you can get away with some sub-Qs if they're going home. But that's just not going to be effective enough if it's even moderate uh, to severe pancreatitis. You may also want to be monitoring the albumin on the chem. And if it's below 2 you'd likely want to start the dog on from go from crystalloids to um, some colloids like head of starch. You know, there can be some third spacing with this particular disease and you, you want to keep the vasculature hydrated with colloids. Yeah, I was reading in today's vet practice about plasma, like using plasma and, you know, there's little information regarding this use. The best use for plasma is if they are thrombocytopenic and they're going into Into DIC, DIC. that's when you really need to get that fresh frozen plasma out. But if we're, if we're just talking about, you know, more moderate, moderate case, then certainly colloids, well, crystalloids, likely colloids. You talked about some controversy with this. So when it comes to feeding, I remember when I did an internship, most of the doctors I worked with, you know, they put the, the pet on NPO, you know, nothing per os, nothing, nothing by mouth for 48 hours minimum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rest the gut. Yeah. But now a lot of practitioners out there are choosing to feed through it. Yep. If possible. Obviously, we have to make sure the animal's keeping things down and not vomiting. So we're, we're still using antiemetics. And, you know, meropotent is the antiemetic of choice with this. There are places that are still using undansetron, dilacetron. But the studies that I found said that meropotent was better. Or you could use both. Or you can use both. That's true. It's easier. It's once a day anyway. Yeah, true. And obviously, like you said, if we're not resting the gut, you still want to make sure that you're feeding a low-fat diet. Absolutely. In severe cases, which I know this is for general practitioners, so you're probably not going to do this, but even giving them a feeding tube and bypassing yeah. the, the stomach and the duodenum, getting it right into that you know jejunal yeah. space, NJ tube would be ideal if you're trying to feed them through it and get them some some nutrition. Yep. So we got fluid therapy. We've got low-fat diet, preferably, and not holding off food. I mean, if the animal's not eating, that you know that could be tough. Antimedics, and then probably something I think is the most important: analgesics. This is a painful disease. 
It's like when I have a stomach bug and I go to my doctor, I'm like, I need you to give me pain meds. I can't even imagine what pancreatitis feels like. Like we tend to forget that GI disease can be pretty painful in pets and ourselves. So absolutely recommend opioids. Yeah, definitely opioids. Stay away from the NSAIDs. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're at this disease, you know, we're at risk of renal issues. We're at risk of gastric issues. We don't want to be giving them any NSAIDs. So I would say pretty strong analgesics, strong opioids. So I'd say the weakest one out there, maybe buprenorphine. Yep. So skip the butorphanol completely. If you only have that for in your- For most things. Yeah, for most <laughs> things, exactly. For painful things. A fentanyl patch is great if you have them. You know, especially for the more moderate to severe cases. What do you think of that? I haven't seen fentanyl patches since the, like, they've been, I've seen them phased out. But yeah, IV fentanyl, of course, or, you know, some sort of MLK drip or something like that. So how do you feel about antibiotics? (laughs) I always ask. At Penn, we were taught. Here we go. (laughs) Not to use antibiotics in pancreatitis. Now, obviously... Case by case. Case by case. I have never used it in a mild case or, or had the need to, I suppose. But of course, if if this animal is, you know, septic and has fluid and GI breakdown, like they're going to be on IV broad spectrum antibiotics, right? But I have, I've never had to do that. What about metronidazole? I've never, you mean for its anti-inflammatory properties? I've never. That and, and, you know, if they're having bloody diarrhea, it might be worth it. Yeah. If you can give it P- P.O. I have not done that, but I guess, yeah, I, I don't, that wouldn't hurt. Yeah, it wouldn't hurt. I'd probably do it. Now, what about steroids, corticosteroids? This is also a little bit controversial. This is controversial. I've ne- also never had to use it. Yeah. Um, I feel like when you start getting desperate in these cases, you start reaching for it, right? I mean, at Penn, we always <laughs> said better pred than dead. So, yes, but no, typically it's avoided an acute mild pancreatitis, even though we no longer think steroids cause pancreatitis, it's still pretty much avoided. But of course, yeah, you could throw it. You could throw it at the dog in low dose. So Marissa, I know you think everything has Addison's disease. Would you be a little worried about Addison's disease with a case like this? Uh, yes. Yeah, of course. But, but uh, yeah, especially if it's a poodle. So maybe one dose of steroids isn't so bad. You can tell we're crossing the hump of 10 plus years being veterinarians. <laughs> Well, the good thing is there is an experimental drug out there that when I was doing a little bit of research for this podcast, I came across. So I don't know too much about it, but I'll just say it. And we also don't know how to say it because we've never heard anyone say it. (laughs) It does end in IB. So it's probably one of these new, you know, uh, Janus kinase type things. Fusaplatib. Fusaplatib. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. It is a uh, LFA1 inhibitor and it blocks neutrophil extravasation. They've been doing some studies in in Japan on this and th- you know it's pretty crazy. It it actually said that um it went from a 50% mortality rate in their patients to 0%. So And this is severe pancreatitis with severe. SIRS. Exactly. Yeah. And and, yeah. and the one thing is all of the pancreatitis cases were were induced pancreatitis. Mm. They weren't totally. naturally occurring, so they were probably worse then. No, I'm just kidding. They were probably worse, yeah. They were probably worse. All right. Well, that's that's good news, except that it's not yet licensed in the U.S. or Europe, but always good. Yeah, keep your eye out and try to pronounce that name. <laughs> I'm sure they'll come up with a name, you know, that, that sounds pretty, like Serenia and Convenia and Silencia. Sure. And obviously, Andrew, we want to send these dogs home on a low-fat diet. 
Hills and Royal Canaan and Purina, they all have a low fat diet that is, you know, easy on the GI tract. So we want to put them on that. And if your dog has recurring pancreatitis, they may be on that long term or forever. So that's definitely something to keep in mind as well. I like to, when I'm practicing, I like when they keep cans of some low fat diet lying around because I'm inherently going to use that, you know, for these mild cases for- Like ID? Yeah, ID low fat is usually the one that I see the most. Yeah, yeah. Most of us know the prognosis for mild cases is good. We've seen it a lot, but- You talked a little bit briefly about like severe cases and SIRS and if it's pretty guarded, if it's severe, they're going to need 24 hour care, obviously, and and product and lots of IV fluids and meds. Yeah. And the one thing is, if there are any, you know, pet parents out there listening to this, if your pet gets pancreatitis and it gets bad, they're probably going to be in the hospital for a week. So everybody listening, just just know what that means. It probably is going to mean a $10,000 bill. And what does that mean pet owners should get? prior pet insurance (laughs) yes pet insurance when they're puppies at least by the time they're middle-aged and fat (laughs) (laughs) oh yes it is not a cheap disease to treat even with mild cases i mean with your diagnostics of course like this can be pretty pricey you could probably just in the diagnostics you could hit a thousand bucks yeah so pet insurance but also keep your dog out of the trash and <laughs> and if you have a miniature schnauzer, get your yearly blood work, <laughs> monitor your <laughs> triglycerides. Yeah, true. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode on the IndieVets Happy Hour. Thank you for listening. Tell your friends. And if you like us, leave us a five-star review and make sure to subscribe so you can be alerted whenever we have a new episode. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at clinical at Also, to learn more about us and how we're making vet med better, head to IndieVets.com. That's I-N-D-E-V-E-T-S dot com. While you're there, be sure to head to our blog for the latest stories and tips from our doctors. And lastly, if you're interested in joining our amazing IndieVets team, please email Dr. Andrew Heller at andrew at IndieVets.com. See you next time. Cheers. Cheers.